From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Each year at this time, one jam-packed week takes a bite out of television viewing. Discovery Channel's Shark Week started yesterday. This year, the focus is on conservation. We at On Second Thought are using the occasion to explore sharks along Georgia's coast and beyond and learn some facts about these media magnet predators. We've got a group of people here who work with sharks to help us out. Joining us from Savannah is Paulita Bennett-Martin, a campaign organizer for Oceana, a, an advocacy ocean group. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? Very well. Brian Flick is also with us. He's Associate Director of UGA's Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. Hello, Brian. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. And James Glancy is on the line from Los Angeles. He's a conservationist. He's a former British Royal Marine. And you can see him on Discovery Channel's Shark Wrecked Crash Landing. That's tomorrow evening. A good and very early morning to you, James. Thanks for being here. Good morning. All right. I want to start with Brian. We all know what a shark is, but not necessarily what a shark is, a kind of fish, obviously, but remarkably different from other fish families. So what makes a shark a shark in terms of body structure or other characteristics? Sure. So sharks are, are fish. But we, we call them cartilaginous fish. So if you think about the uh, flexible material in your nose and ears, that's what their uh, skeletal framework is made up of. And um, uh, opposed to, say, like a grouper or snapper that has the, the its bony skeleton, um, and they are uh, what we often refer to as apex predators. So they play an important part in our food web um, and uh, consume on other, uh, mostly fish, but other, you know, certain shark species depend, uh, might feed on things like crabs or shrimp or, or honestly even garbage or whatever they get their, their mouths on. But they're highly adapted for our ocean environments and really can be found throughout our oceans uh, from um, uh, Arctic waters through the tropics and uh, um, typically refer to what they call cold-blooded, and obviously that doesn't mean that their bloods are really cold, but it's the fact that uh, depending on the, the environment around them, they can regulate that. And um, uh, But they are predators, and uh, you know, here in Georgia, we're very fortunate that, uh, I guess, maybe from, the perspective, from, from a biology perspective, we're very fortunate because we have a number of shark species that inhabit our waters part or, or full-time um, throughout the year. Well, Paulita, I'd love to hear more about that, because we often hear about the hammerheads of the great whites. What is the variety of sharks, especially? Especially here in Georgia. About the variety of sharks, it's a little hard to hear you. So she was, Polly, she was asking about the variety of sharks that we have here and the benefits of that. Asking me? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I actually, Brian, I'd love to hear from you <laughs> about the variety. Of, we ha we do have a lot of different sharks because we have um, different kinds of um, you know water streams going close to our coast, so it creates a great amount of biodiversity off of the coast of Georgia. Brian, what sorts of shark species would you name? So here, in, again, what Paulia was referring to, the different waters, if you look in our, our shallow coastal waters, something like bonnet heads or sharp-nosed sharks that, um, you know, for fishermen, it's very commonly encountered. Um, but um, then, you know, when you start getting into things like off the beach, like spinner sharks or, or black nose, but you do have some of the more of the charismatic ones. I mean, we can get bull sharks that actually can go up into fresh water um, and uh, things like tiger sharks or white sharks that uh, obviously bring a lot of attention in the media. And there's obviously a lot of ongoing research because, as, as you know, we do have the fascination with sharks and learning everything that we can from where they pup. Um, and, and, you know, Georgia's coast here in the South Atlantic. Um, you know, a lot of times they can are estuaries, which are important for a number of reasons, can serve as important nursery grounds for many shark species. But, you know, we have offshore areas like Gray's Reef that obviously a number of sharks are going to pass by as well. So 
whether we're, we're looking at something like black tips or sandbar sharks, um, nurse sharks. And um, again, the, those charismatic tiger, uh, great white and, and bulls are also the ones that, uh, you know, gain a lot of attention. So again, from, you know, if you look worldwide, there's uh, estimated to be, you know, close to um, 400 different types of species of sharks. And the majority of those most people will never encounter in their lifetime. Um, recently new discovered uh, shark in the Gulf of Mexico, pocket shark. Um, and some of them can live in deep, deep waters. And again, we would never have an opportunity to see them. So there's been a lot, you know, if you look at Shark Week, there's been a lot of opportunities to try to bring uh, to the forefront knowledge of, of some of these species that sometimes people don't realize even exist in their backyard. Well, sh- James, this is something that you deal with. I know you've had a fascinated with shar- fascination with sharks your whole life. So what kind of numbers are we seeing in shark populations today? And what are some of the risks facing them? Good morning, and thanks very much for having me on. Well, when you say that, when we're talking about numbers, I think the big headline figures is the the decline that we have seen, uh, particularly since 1996, when they say that was one of the peak years for fishing catches around the world. But to give you an example of a statistic, in the Gulf of Mexico, oceanic white tips, which were once the most abundant shark in the sea, they've seen declines of about 99% since the 1970s. That's stunning. That pattern, that pattern, yeah, I mean, and that's um, replicated across the world, and that's as a result of commercial industrialized fishing using different um, industrialized practices, whether it's long line um, fishing uh, hooks, um, the, the boats have over 100, some of them have over 100 kilometers worth of um, fishing line and hooks behind them, and they're indiscriminate or gill nets, but what we've seen is this massive collapse uh, in shark populations around the world, and that has a huge effect on the marine ecosystems um, everywhere, and a really damaging effect, and, and that's what we're seeing. So when um, uh, we talk about Shark Week, which, um, which, as we know, is on this week, it's actually very difficult to find locations to film because there's a lack of an abundance of sharks, so we end up always filming in, area, in marine protected areas. And um, so you, you kind of regularly see the same types of species in the same locations because it's very difficult to find sharks in numbers anymore. Well, that's what you did in Palau this year. I'd love to get to that later, but I uh, just want to identify James Glancy. Their conservation is featured on Discovery Channel's Shark Wrecked Crash Landing this week. Also with us from UGA, Brian Fleck, and also Paulita Bennett-Martin. She's a campaign organizer for, say the name of your organization if you don't mind. Do you say Oceana or Oceana? Sure, you could say Oceana. Okay. And the, you work, your work focuses on one threat to shark, which is sharks, which is shark finning. The, the practice just uh, reads very brutally. Uh, they fin sharks, cut their fins off often when they are still alive, often throwing them back into the ocean, which pretty much dooms them. But shark fin soup is considered a delicacy in Chinese culture. What role does the U.S. play in shark fin markets, Paulita? Sure. Um, so the U.S. plays a, a big role, um, being that we're such a large country, with uh, the trade. So um, since 2000, we actually have had a prohibition um, on the actual act of finning in the United States. Um, so that's not a practice that we're used to here. However, we are involved in the trade of shark fins um, through our borders, and that's a, a huge role. Um, that is very important we take a look at and try to remove ourselves from that. Well, Georgia in particular is a leading hub for transit for shark fins, from what I understand. Um, Yes, it has been. 
and no longer. I mean, I, I know that Congress had uh, moved to pass a ban, but that was not a national ban. States were deciding for themselves. What's the status of that now? Um, exactly. So f- for the for the national ban, what we have is um, the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act. That's what we're currently working on now. Um, and we have about, I would say that that bill has about 221 or possibly more co-sponsors currently. It is a largely bipartisan um, group of supporters on that, of members of Congress. Um, and then it's uh, H.R. 737 on the House side. On the Senate side, it's um, S-877. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of what we're looking at now is how do we get, how do we move the Senate side of this bill so that we can pass a fin ban in the United States? How much is exported to China? Excuse me? How much shark fin, let's say tonnage weight exported to China from the U.S. and Georgia in particular? Um, sure. So Georgia used to be the leading um, exporter of fins in the U.S. It has since changed a bit. I believe it may have moved down to Miami. Um, for tonnage, I don't have those numbers here in front of me. Um, but what we've seen on the on these um, issues is that several states across the United States have also done statewide bans on shark fins. And often the numbers where they're high for import or export in those states moves once those bans occur. Mm. Um, So they are effective. And that's why we're looking at trying to pass a national ban on fins, because we know that it has a positive impact on shark conservation. Well, let's talk about some of the misconceptions about sharks. One, the best defense against a shark is to punch it in the nose. Okay. Who, should, who do I ask that to? Brian, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I, obviously, if you do find yourself being uh, attacked by a shark, I mean, it's, it is one of those things that, that, you know, you'll see that in text written. Um, you know, it really is. It, it happens. You know, you'll hear people from experience that it happens so fast. In fact, this morning uh, on the news, there was a report from Jacksonville about a surfer. And he talked about, you know, that he had heard about hitting in the nose. And he said it happened so fast. Um, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, you have to realize most of the shark attacks that we hit uh, that that are documented are more hit and run where usually with the sharks because they have very highly developed senses of so both smell, taste here, um, also being able to detect electric uh, electric reception. A lot of times the shark realizes when they, you know, if they bite into a human, that's not what they're going for. So a lot of times they actually do just take off. But there's also another kind of broad category called bump and bite. And that might be where that shark does come back. And there is, you know, one aspect of punching in the nose or potentially if, if you know, if it is on you, uh, you know, even trying to get around the gills or the eyes, which are going to be more sensitive areas just to try to get it off. But those are, you know, th- that's obviously a, a last second defense um, if you find yourself in. And I can fortunately and confidently say that uh, very few people are going to find themselves in that situation. Yeah, like one in three million seven hundred thousand from what I'm looking at for numbers. All right, James, how about the notion that sharks can smell one drop of blood from a mile away? Uh, well, there's absolutely no doubt they have some of the most sophisticated sensory systems of any animal on the planet. And, you know, they've evolved over millions of years to be this perfect apex predator. Um, I can't, I can't, I mean, I can't tell you whether that fact is absolutely correct. Although I do think it's been put to the test on Shark Week this week. But what I, I do know is when you're talking about how best to avoid being um, attacked. By a shark, there are rules that to follow, and you know one of those is you know you don't you don't just jump into the water at dawn and dusk. You try and avoid um, river mouths or murky water because those are areas where um, 
sharks can make mistakes because they do. A lot of sharks do use their vision. Um, and um, if you're in murky water, the river mouth water, that's where things like bull, shark, bull sharks can make mistakes. Uh, and those are the sort of sharks you don't want to get, um, you don't want to get tagged by. So um, it is true they have an incredibly se uh, sensitive sensory system but uh, I'm not sure I can confirm that how, just how sensitive it is with a drop of blood. But I do know that they're not looking for human blood because I spent a lot of time in, in the water with some of the, the big predators, such as oceanic white tips, and, and they're just not that interested. Brian, anything that you want to add to that? That sensitivity, the drop of water? I mean, drop of blood, rather. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with James and the, the, the absolute specifics of that. I, I can't comment on either. But yes, I mean, they do have very acute sense of smell. And, and that's one of the things that makes them such efficient predators in the ocean is that they're not just relying on that one sense, whether it is smell or hear. And, um, you know, you got to think about, too, just the physics of water, that sound travels a lot quicker. Um, they might not have external ears like you and I do, but they do have the ability to, to pick up on that. So, you know, excess splashing, I mean, we, a lot of us, you know, we like to go in the water for fun. And, um, but just being mindful of that, um, you know, that's why also I think James said about being not going up by yourself. Because a lot of times just being a larger group, um, the, the excess splashing can possibly attract. Also, just jewelry. Um, you know, a lot of our waters, just it's the lights, it's shallow enough for water to penetrate. And having an excess jewelry on there can be reflective, and that can be similar to, you know, a lot of bait um, or schooling forage fish that uh, the sharks do prey on. So that sometimes can cause confusion. Um, and then, you know, scrapes, again, that's one of those things, too, just scrapes in, 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 on your body, just being mindful about that. Um, um, that it doesn't necessarily mean a shark. That is going to bring a shark in, but it certainly can uh, increase your chances. James Glancy there. On, he is, I'm sorry, that was Brian Flick. He's Associate Director of UGA's Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. Also with us, James Glancy on Discovery Channel's Shark Wrecked this weekend. Paulita Bennett-Martin from Oceana. We're going to take a quick break and be back. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB and Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Floating Vibes by the Florida band Surfer Blood, one of many songs inspired by Shark Week, now in its 31st year on Discovery Channel. And this year, Shark Week is focusing on conservation and dispelling myths about sharks. Well, I'm joined by a pair of Georgia-based folks who go deep on the subject of sharks, Paulita Bennett-Martin, campaign organizer for Oceana, and Brian Flick, associate director of UGA's Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. Also with us, James Glancy, conservationist and former British Special Forces, featured on Shark Wrecked crash landing tomorrow evening on Discovery Channel. Okay, this song's a little tongue-in-cheek, of course, but shark attack is such a common phrase and a common fear. Are shark attacks frequent here in the Southeast? Brian. No, not at all. Uh, so just to put things in perspective, so worldwide, there's probably about 70 to 100 confirmed shark attacks annually, uh, on average with anywhere from 5 to 15 deaths, which, of course, one death is tragic enough. But And I say, you know, probably because obviously there are not every attack is, is confirmed. But when we look at unprovoked shark attacks, and I think that is important to distinguish between provoked and unprovoked, um, last year, in 2018 worldwide, we're talking 66 confirmed unprovoked cases. Um, and that's actually a little bit lower on the five-year average. Um, you know, typically it's around the 80s. But in the United States, uh, for example, there were 32 cases of unprovoked uh, attacks. So this is slightly down from 2017. Um, but I bring this up because if you think about how many millions of people come to our coast every year, and, um, you know, but it obviously garners the most amount of attention. Um, but uh, there's such a number of other factors just driving to the beach. You're more likely to get injured 
or you know getting your foot cut on a, sh a shell but um, we do like to constantly go back and harp on the on the sharks and and you know this not be naive i mean they do live there that is their habitat um and it does happen like i said there was just a report this morning in jacksonville but um, chances of it happening are extremely rare. Yeah, I'm seeing figures like one in uh, buckets and pails injured 11,000 Americans in 1996. Sharks injured 13. A lot of different numbers like that. But J James, you've been diving with sharks since you were 14. Have you never been attacked? No, never at all. I mean, I, yeah, I, I actually don't even know anybody that, that has been um, attacked. Uh, I thought I thought your uh, colleague, Shark Wrecked co-star Paul DeGelder oh, you know had. What? what am I talking about? <laughs> Paul DeGelder, of course. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. Yes, I do. My <laughs> co-host, uh, Paul DeGelder, was bitten um, and lost his arm and leg to a bull shark in Sydney Harbour hmm. uh, just over 10 years ago. So, no, I, I tell a lie. That's false. But what I, what I mean is when, I'm, when I've been diving, I've not seen any incidents um, that have that particularly worried me. Sharks do come close, they do bump you, but when they're bumping you, a lot of the time, um, because they don't have hands, if you swim with sharks that haven't seen humans before, they're curious in the same way as um, sea lions uh, and many other mammals, whether it's orcas uh, and uh, dolphins, they're curious about what we are um, and they're trying to work out, you know, are we edible, um, do we pose a threat? Um, but yes, Paul, um, he was hit, and, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier in the program, that murky water um, splashing, swimming on his back, and it was a surprise um, hit-and-run attack by a bull shark. But the problem is, is when you've got a shark of a, you know, over 10 foot or fully grown, um, it's going to cause you a lot of damage even with one bite. But you know, I think the, the important statistic here is not just um, how many people um, are bitten by sharks or how many fatalities. It's the number of sharks that humans kill a year. And you know, we there are estimates of over 100 million sharks killed by fishermen or in bycatch a year for their fins, for their meat, and for their liver oil, which is quite simply a staggering number when you consider um, people are worried about um, the numbers of elephants and rhinos that are killed a year, that rhinos are about a thousand a year in South Africa. But we're talking hundreds of millions of sharks a year, too many for their populations to recover. Well, I know that that's part of what you're doing with Shark Wrecked. You know, you're showing that for last year in 2018, you and Paul spent 43 hours in the water, day and night off the coast of the Bahamas, surrounded by white tip sharks. Now in 2019, you, you and Paul plunge into the sea off of Palau in the Pacific. So what are you trying to do there? I mean, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> is my question. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 those two um, those two shows they they are adventure shows. They're entertainment, and what we're trying to do is get the, an audience that wouldn't necessarily watch a natural history shark program, but does like adventure of two military guys to watch the show, and we can drip feed you know educational points about sharks um, into the audience. And one of those is dispelling myths. So the USS Indianapolis, um, which is a U.S. ship that sank in 1945 in the Second World War. Let me just stop you for one second, because we just spoke to the authors of that book last week and talked about what happened with that tragedy. So some of our listeners may be familiar. Excellent. Well, that's, well that, 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 um, that book actually inspired Jaws. And as you know, um, that, that, that event inspired Jaws. Um, as you know, that has helped, that has demonized sharks in sort of popular folktales for a long time, movies and um, shows like that. What we wanted to show is that if you are in the water for a long time with oceanic white tits, which were largely responsible for taking people um, in, uh, off the USS Indianapolis, taking the sailors, 
um, that it's not necessarily the sharks you have to worry about. It's being in the water. It's dehydration. It's hypothermia. There are so many other things that people need to worry about above sharks if they find themselves in the water. Most people, more people die, obviously, of drowning. So the second show this year um, on Shark Wreck 2 crash landing, that's replicating the experience of downed Air Force pilots in the Pacific. And that actually happened to George Bush, President George Bush. And again, these silky sharks, they just weren't interested in us. It was actually an, a fantastic, beautiful experience. And we we're able to show that, you know, the sharks, yes, if you are at sea a long time and you've got casualties of, you know, dead bodies around you, they will eat, they will eat those bodies. But actually, it's not the sharks that you have to worry about. It's the exposure at sea. And we still struggle to find them because we've killed so many. Whereas 75 years ago, when the Indianapolis sank, when, the world, when world War II was on, there would have been so many more sharks in the water, you probably would have a lot more to have worried about. Well, that's one of the things that becomes clear in look, watching this. The sharks, they're just beautiful, the shots of them swimming around with you above them. And we see these beautiful, graceful creatures. But we do know that uh, other mammals are more commonly responsible for human fatalities than sharks, you know, farm animals, insects, dogs, horses, cattle. But we don't have dog week or cow week on television. So what is the fascination and, and what can we do? Brian, I'll ask that to you. Um, to dramatize, as as Paul was show, as James was talking about, this idea that you can live in coexistence with sharks. Yeah, you know, and when first asked about the, the value of Shark Week, it, it does. If you think about from when it before it started, I mean, people's awareness of sharks, other than maybe the ones who lived on the coast, yeah, it, you you only did hear it through Jaws and, and through some of the more cultural phenomena. So it, it certainly has raised awareness of the the role that sharks play. Just the same, I mean, and you're right, we don't have dog week and cat week, but um, they are part of our natural environment. You know, we do rely on them for fisheries, so it's important, as, you know, from economic, from tourism, you know, millions of dollars are generated from diving from them. So they are part of our, our, our ecosystems here, both the, the environmental aspect and the human aspect. Um, it's, it's one of the things I think as people watch, I mean, it's, it's easier said than done, but trying to take the 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 entertainment value versus the educational value and you know it's, it's edutainment i mean you, you're drawing that that mix and uh but you know I, there are a lot of great resources out there that you know i would i would direct people to i know that the international shark attack file which is at the florida museum of natural history has a lot of uh, you know research-based information about your relative risk of attack so it's you know it's great for the entertainment per purposes to go to shark week and, and certainly there's educational components but don't just stop there go you know there's a number of, of wonderful resources credible resources whether it's different universities or sea grant programs uh, or different um, oceanic groups whether it's conservancy oceana different like that so please you know i would say take upon the individuals to go out and do some some education on themselves beyond just what they see on the tv uh, just a minute left so i'm going to ask you quickly paulita is there anything that you, in your opinion the idea of what is something that people don't know about sharks that you would love them to know? Sure. I mean, I would like to add to what Brian just said by, you know, looking at the shark bite history is one thing that you could do, but also taking a look beyond that at how sharks play a role in their habitat range in these ecosystems. So as an apex predator, they have a huge impact on the other species in the area. Um, that's important to us in, in our time, any time, but now I would say with the connections to climate issues as well, uh, we should be thinking about how different species impact their areas. So getting to know sharks from um, that place of their role 
um, in the ocean is equally important to you know, the, the hype around I'm, the sensationalization I'm going to have to stop sharks. you there because that's all we have time for. Polita Bennett-Martin, thank you, James Glancy and Brian Flick. Thanks all so much. Thank, thank you. you. Now for some additions to our Georgia playlist. We ask artists to pick two songs written or performed by another Georgian. They just can't pick their own song. Amy Ray is part of the seminal Georgia group Indigo Girls. Her sixth solo album, Holler, came out last fall. Here are her picks for our essential Georgia playlist. I'm Amy Ray from Indigo Girls from Atlanta, Georgia. And the first song for the Georgia playlist is I'm Gonna Sail Like a Ship on the Ocean by Henry Morrison and the St. Simons Island Singers. Captured by Alan Lomax. I'm gonna sail like a ship on the ocean. I'm gonna sail like a ship on the ocean. I'm gonna sail like a ship on the ocean. I listened to this whole collection. I bought it. Um, probably 15, 20 years ago and basically played the whole thing. It's like four CDs and it traces like Appalachian Mountains, the coast, um, kind of, and like blues kind of work songs. I'm gonna sail till my sailing day is over. He revealed what was going on in these out-of-the-way places, and he gave us a sense of um, empathy and compassion for other people, and and people that ranged from, you know, white Appalachian rural mountain people to, uh, you know, people that were living on the coast of Georgia, uh, African American communities, um, blues communities. Um, old ladies in their kitchen singing songs about murder. I mean, it. he showed us something that you don't get to see just in the pop world of radio and, and now just like internet. Well, I'm gonna sail till I sail up the glory. I'm gonna sail till I sail up in glory. I'm gonna sail till I sail up and go The thing that field recordings did for me as a writer is it freed me up a little bit. And so, you know, with Indigo Girls, I had, you know, always written in a folk tradition and maybe influenced by punk rock a little bit. But to hear field recordings and the freedom of people that weren't um, necessarily schooled musically. Um, but created a style that we try to emulate now, um, gave me a sense of freedom to like stretch a little bit. And, and I started writing songs that were in the tradition of like mountain music or field recordings where I felt like I didn't have to follow a certain mechanism of verse chorus or a certain way of doing things. And, and also it freed me up, I think production wise, because the looseness of the call and response was not so rigid like the like the choral traditions that I had learned in. So I think it, it was a technical thing, but it was also just a spiritual thing. My father. Mm-hmm. 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 My 
The second song for the Georgia playlist is a song called Remains by the band Algiers. I discovered this band, uh, I think it was like three years ago. It's led by a guy named Franklin James Fisher. Um, like the band itself struck me because they were mixing styles that were like kind of tied to this field recording thing which went back to the gospel and field recordings of hand claps and call and response of the early negro spirituals but also he was mixing in like punk rock and like bands like joy division and and bands that were more industrial For me, they're a current representation of the Atlanta music scene because they're so cross-pollinated between um, black music and punk rock and industrial kind of what, what was thought of, I think, in a way is like kind of like white punk industrial British music. To me, it's kind of part of the punk scene. energy is super young and um, very activist almost like dystopian sort of cynicism but at the same time like energetic in this way that's just like I, I don't know like his voice <laughs> has this really old-fashioned quality like almost like 1930s kind of a jazz vibe um, but but punk rock and um, it's got a tone to it that's really interesting and not like anything I had heard Georgia is, is vast, but the one thing about Georgia that threads everything together is that it's got an organic quality to it that is sweaty and down and dirty and and risky, you know, and raw. And um, we've had to engage in dialogue in a very direct way for a really long time, and we haven't been polite about it. And so I think that's a beautiful thing to capture in music. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier in the show, we spoke with UGA's Brian Flick and others about sharks. Well, Flick has looked deeply at communities along the coast as well. He and Georgia Southern anthropology professor Jennifer Sweeney Tooks led a team of anthropology students in an oral history project to document the changes in small-scale fishing communities in Georgia. If y'all could just go out and see how we do this thing, you'd be amazed. How we, set the, how we set the nets and how we bring them in. 
It's awesome. I spoke with Brian and Jennifer earlier when the project Fishing Traditions and Fishing Futures, Oral Histories of Commercial Fishing in Georgia, was wrapping up and asked Brian what makes fishing a more than billion-dollar industry in Georgia. So one thing about that that number, um, you've got to separate both uh, domestic versus the import. So in a in place like Georgia, where Atlanta is such a huge metropolitan area, um, the, a lot of the seafood industry positions are, are supporting more imported products. But if you look at our domestic industry, you're probably only looking around, you know, 1,000, 1,500 jobs, so it's significantly smaller, but again, economically and as Jennifer will talk about culturally, that plays a huge role in our coast. Well, let's get to some of the cultural extension there. Fishing is often a multi-generational business. Here's a piece from one of the oral histories you gathered from a man recalling going out on the water when he was 12. So I got on the boat with him and his crew, and we worked no clocking at 24 hours a day. I was on the back deck all night long picking up shrimp with his crew. You know, it was it was cold. It was like freezing to me. Jennifer, is it likely that people were born into fishing and that's what they're expected to do? What we heard from many of the people that we spoke with was that is indeed how it has been in the past. Uh, sadly, what we are hearing, though, is that more and more fishers have been encouraging their children to go out of the industry, to go to college, look for jobs on the hill, as they call them. Um, so we are seeing a, a large exodus of people from the industry. That being said, on one of the days that we did our interviews, we did, in fact, talk with three different generations of the same family who were shrimping. What does on the hill mean? You mean dry <laughs> land? Off the water. Yes. <laughs> Anywhere but. Anywhere, Anywhere but, but on the water. Yeah. In fact, one person told us, I can't do that. My gills dry out. <laughs> oh, Jennifer, you and Brian worked with a group of anthropology students on the project. And oral history, that's one methodology for studying communities. How, how does it fit into the understanding of Georgia Fishers? You know, oral histories really gave us a chance to hear the stories that the fishing community thought we needed to hear. Uh, it's a way to ask open-ended questions, to listen to the stories, to the histories, to the experiences, and then to look for commonalities among those stories. What are some of the perceptions that students had of coastal life before they started? Well, that was fun. I actually had them keep journals before we went to the coast and asked them to log some of those preconceptions. And many of them mentioned overfishing, thinking that it was likely that fishers were harming the environment. They were worried about turtles. Um, it was never said explicitly, but there was definitely a sense that they didn't necessarily think they would be the most intelligent folks they had ever worked with. And boy, did they come out of the whole experience completely turned around in all of those expectations. Hmm. So you witnessed all that. But, uh, you know, part of what's happening is like many small scale operations in our economy, they've been overtaken by large industrial operations. To what extent, Brian, has this happened to fishing? So when we look at Georgia's fishing community along with others in the U.S., I mean, there's been a number of issues. For one, probably related to shrimp that's been most significant has been the imports. Um, we now import over 90% of the seafood that we eat in the United States, um, particularly shrimp, which is the number one um, type of seafood that, that Americans eat. That certainly has had a, a, a taken a toll economically on the prices. It's been hard for our fishermen to compete. Um, over the decades, though, there's also been a number of uh, regulation changes as well, and um, which may be necessary for management. But you know, again, it can have an impact on on the fishermen financially. So, whether it's where they could fish or the type of gear they could have. Um, as Jen, uh, Jennifer alluded to as well, though, the other issue we collectively refer to as grain of the fleet is. 
the fishermen are getting older, the vessels are getting older, the infrastructure to support them, and that, that's a key part. You can't just have the boats, you've got to have the, the fish stocks, you've got to have the ice houses, the, the, the shops for you know hardware. Um, because of that, then we're seeing a lot of the younger fishermen getting out of it. So you've got this collective, um, just a number of issues that are affecting the ability. Yet, you know, there are fishermen that are still um, thriving, but just over the years that these, these socioeconomic factors continue to take the toll. Well, Brian, your office, you're right next to a fishery in Brunswick. How, how did people working there respond when you approached them asking for their histories, their stories? <laughs> what? Uh, I understand yeah, no, that I mean... fishermen like to talk about what they do. Well, it's. I think it's miscommunication a lot of times. I, I think they, they've and I think Jennifer can allude to this too. I think a lot of times that they feel like they've been misinterpreted or that, you know, they've been painted as quote unquote the bad guys. And when in reality, I mean, they, their perceptions and their, their experiences in the water, um, and many times are in line with what you might hear from a, <clears throat> excuse me, a conservation group or, man, or, or managers. But, um, you know, yeah, there was hesitation. I mean, and I think part of that also aligned with the fear of, you know, how are they, you know, are our voices going to be misinterpreted? But I think once we started doing the interviews, um, it was amazing to see the, the, how the, the fishermen opened up with the students, and I think it was a learning experience for, for both sides. Well, let's hear among the oral histories you collected. Here is a little bit of a couple that fishes together. You'll see the birds like swoop down in the back, and when they fly up past the wheelhouse, they have a big shrimp in their hand. And he always says, oh, we're getting them, we're getting them, because always, he's always told me from the beginning, oh, we're going to get them. You see that bird? Yeah, because they're getting them. If you've got birds and they see them shrimp, it don't take but one shrimp to jump on top of the water. <laughs> so, so listening to that, Jennifer, what do you think? You know, the, we t uh, Brian mentioned earlier there's a lot in line with the way that the fishers describe being out on the water with conservation management. These are, these are often posed as opposing forces. What's going on here? Which is an unfortunate misconception in many cases. Um, fishermen are often limited by management, and there's obviously often some frustration with regulations that they feel perhaps aren't uh, reflecting the true needs of the environment. You know, and we could talk about that <laughs> for another two hours. Um, but at the end of the day, what we heard in so many of these oral history interviews was a very deep love for the environment and a sense of awe and appreciation and concern about the well-being of the oceans and the creatures in them and and just a, a real sense of a privilege of being able to be on the water and see these things. Yeah, as I was listening to them, I was thinking there's almost a kind of spiritual awe. Would, would they identify it as that? Absolutely. And in fact, that's another one of the key themes that came out of a lot of the interviews is a very deep sense of, of religious faith and belief that they're able to do this because God has put this resource there and that God allows them to do this every day and being very grateful for that privilege. That's uh, Georgia Southern Anthropology Professor Jennifer Sweeney Tooks, along with UGA Associate Director of Marine Extension Brian Flick. We're talking about a project that they've been doing, an oral history of fishers along Georgia's coast. Well, what do you know that if you're talking about this is something God given? Uh, Brian, I want to just push it a little bit, understanding a little bit better the, the relationship between the regulators and the fishers, which is, again, often at least depicted as an opposition. You heard differently here? 
You know, I think it depended on who you talked to. I mean, I think, you know, fishermen recognize that you do need management. And, and we are fortunate in Georgia, both at the state level and the federal level, that we do have well-managed fisheries. Um, and it's a tough decision because, you know, the, the people making these decisions have to try to balance the needs of the environmental concerns. And they do have to consider that economic and social piece. That's one of the reasons we're doing this project is, you know, we, we think about sustainability, often it is in the context of environmental, uh, which is certainly important. But to truly be sustainable long time or long term, you can't ignore the economic and social piece. And I think often the social connection, they, you know, there's frustration because, of course, you know, especially in areas where they used to be able to fish and they can't, of course, they're, they're going to be upset by that. Because one thing that we the interviews revealed was, it wasn't just that you're taking away, you know, a, you know, there's a regulation, but that was something they grew up learning. That was their backyard. That was areas where they intimately learned the, their, you know, the local environment. Of course, it's environmental. It's economic. It's communal. Jennifer, give us a sense of how coastal towns are different now than they were at the height of the fishing industry. This is in the 50s and 60s, especially when oystering was big. They've changed tremendously over that period of time. And, and this might be more in Brian's wheelhouse, but there's definitely been a huge loss of the infrastructure necessary. There's fewer and fewer docks where commercial fishing boats are allowed to dock. Uh, there are fewer fish houses to process the seafood. We don't have any oyster picking houses or crab picking houses crab picking. on the coast yeah. at all anymore. Um, we had one fisher years and years ago on a different project in Liberty County say, so you know, that's, this has always been an emblem of Liberty County is that shrimp boat on the dock. And now there's not a single dock where shrimp boats can tie up in Liberty County. Mm. And in fact, just recently in Darien, there's been a tremendous loss to the working waterfront in Darien. How does that change how they relate to each other and think of themselves communally? <sighs> Want to take that one? <laughs> well, I mean, I just if I could jump in, you're you're saying a key piece, community. In many cases, the entire community resolved, you know, revolved around fishing. So, you know, the fishermen would go to the grocery store, and the, and the people who worked at that grocery store knew that's where some of their sources of income are coming from, or the hardware store. You start taking away one piece, it just it starts tugging at the rest of the threads in that community. So. You've had to adjust. I mean, Jennifer mentioned the, the crabs. You know, we do not have any more picking houses. So our crabbers now work really more crab to order. And in fact, many of them have become, you know, they're the fishermen and then they're dealers. And in some cases, they're being shipped up to places like Chesapeake Bay where they can get better prices. So the fishermen have, have had to adapt. I mean, that's one thing. They're very, you know, we, we often talk about resiliency, but from the fishermen's perspective, I mean, this is their livelihood. This is what they've had to adapt and, and change the ways that they've operated. And, and even our shrimpers, you know, they have to be a lot more strategic now um, when they go out because they have to consider the prices they're getting or what they might be paying their crew or, or gas prices. And um, so you can't just be a fisherman anymore. You've got to be the businessman. You've got to be the marketer. You've got to be the conservationist. And like them or hate them, you've got to engage with management as well. Mm, well, uh, uh, speaking of adaptation, there have been a number of studies on how Climate change has affected ocean temperatures, oxygen levels in the water, which, of course, is affecting the population underneath. How is it affecting fisheries and communities, Brian? Again, how many hours do we have? Um, you know, it, it's harder to put a, a pulse on that. But I mean, if, again, I, I mentioned about historical and ecological knowledge. I mean, if you talk to these fishermen, they do see changes and, and you know, on the waters about maybe when shrimp might show up or, and, and you know, when they leave or, you know, other species. So it's, it's, it's harder to necessarily put like one defining factor on that. But it's something that, you know, fishermen and, and pe I think people in general that work out in the, in the you know, water resources or even farmers, 
they they are often the first to see some of these subtle changes and and you know politically they might disagree with terminology that's used but they definitely i mean from our conversations with them have seen changes and how that may impact the fishery i mean that's i think that's still to be determined there there might be winners there might be losers in some cases there might not be any changes it's just it's hard to to, to put a specific you know number to that jennifer you talked about uh, the infrastructure necessary, and boats and boat maintenance being a huge part of the work and expense. Tell us a little bit about the relationship of fishers and their boats. How do they get them? Many of them are older boats. They've been passed down now for, gosh, since the 60s and 70s, many of these were built. Um, so many of them are older wooden boats that require a lot of care. Um, many of them are not able to get insurance on these boats anymore. It's very expensive when they're able to procure it. Uh, so there's definitely a constant need for maintenance and work. During the interviews, many of them described all the different ways that they need to be prepared to make on-the-fly fixes out on the water. Mm. Uh, somebody told us, you know, we can't run to the store <laughs> and grab that part we need. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's definitely some MacGyvering going on on these boats to keep them functional. MacGyver has nothing on a fisherman. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they're also adapting new technologies. Here's one person from the Oral History Project talking about how high-tech tools are changing things. A long time ago, we had to have our trees to line up for the sloughs, but now they got the got they got computer now with the GPS and stuff. Or you could see them, you know, in the boat now. It's more easier now. Ain't like it was a long time ago. A little baby goes from now. A little baby could shrimp now. So the boats may be old, but they've got new technologies. How are they combining these traditional maps and knowledge that you talked about with technologies like GPS, Brian? Well, it's, it's funny because depending on who we talk to, some people are not as, you know, in, in favor of it. I mean, they, because they did historically rely on that historical knowledge where some of the younger uh, interviews we had, they're like, we love it. We have Apple computers on board. Um, you know, and these days with, I mean, you can plot your, your courses and, I mean, you know where all your hangups are to avoid any type of, you know, running aground. Um, you know, with some of the bottom finding machines these days, I mean, that's, you really get a, a much clearer picture of where you're fishing at. So you're, you're able to combine some of the historical uh, ecological knowledge as well as, you know, just with our ability to, um, you know, where you're going, where you've been. I mean, that it adds. And I mean, that's also a safety factor, too, of, of being able to track. So, um, yeah, some, some fishermen have, have embraced that a little bit more than others. And, you know, certainly from the younger generation where we've grown up with so much technology, it's, it's just kind of a second thought to them. Here's another clip. Jennifer, you did talk to some folks who are hopeful about the future of fishing. Let's hear a little bit more of that audio from the project. Fishermen are eternal optimists. You know, you got to be. You know, if you're not getting them this drag, well, maybe next drag. If you don't get them today, maybe tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Don't get in the bar, maybe next week. If you don't have hope, what do you have? You at least got to have that. Well, that's the way they've lived for a very long time. <laughs> Did the people that you spoke to in coastal fishing communities talk about, you know, what has happened to their industry and, and where they think it's going to go? Absolutely. And, and we really approach them with wanting to understand the fishing traditions and fishing futures. And so we would ask them, what is the future of the industry? 
And the answers were really very mixed in that most people, many people described it literally, quote unquote, as a dying industry and sort of talked about the changes they've seen, especially since what seemed to be this banner year of 1979. They all kept talking about 1979, um, but sort of seeing a decline in the fishery, seeing a decline in the infrastructure, seeing a decline in the prices that they would receive because of the competition from imported shrimp but also an increase in gas prices, an increase in ice prices. So all of these things happening simultaneously. So they would describe that to us, but then also tell us the sort of the different ways they saw to go forward with fishing in Georgia, which was to think outside of that same model, to not try to take fishing back to the way that it was in 1979, but instead look for direct marketing opportunities or alternate ways of selling the catch or perhaps downsizing to smaller boats. Uh, so they, they definitely, many of them had some concrete plans as to how fishing could sustain itself. Georgia Southern anthropology professor Jennifer Sweeney Tooks there, along with University of Georgia Associate Director of Marine Extension Brian Flick. Their oral history project with Georgia Fishers is now complete. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Jake Troyer, and Laraven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>